0: Welcome to Pandemic Ethics, a podcast dedicated to the defining moral challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm your host, Joshua Price. My guest for this inaugural episode is Jonathan Wolfe, professor of ethics and public policy at Oxford University. Our topics today are philosophical ethics, how can it inform public policy, What principles ought to guide policy during the pandemic? And what do we owe to those who take on additional risks to provide essential goods and services during the pandemic? Please join us. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the inaugural episode of the Pandemic Ethics Podcast. On this podcast, we discuss the great ethical challenges of the COVID-19 pandemic with world-renowned experts in ethics, health, law, economics, public policy, and beyond. I'm your host, Joshua Price, Director of the Program in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at Minnesota State University and author of Just Work for All, The American Dream in the 21st Century, which is coming out from Rutledge at the end of 2020. It is my great pleasure today to welcome for our inaugural episode, Jonathan Wolf. Uh, Professor Wolf is Alfred Landecker, Professor of Values and Public Policy at Oxford and the author of many, many articles and books, including Ethics in Public Policy, which is also from Routledge and which is now in its second edition. Uh, Joe, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure, Josh. Before
0: moving to the uh, issues raised by the pandemic itself, I wonder if we might talk a little bit about ethics and public policy in general. And in your view, how can moral and political philosophy and moral and political philosophers like us um, contribute to policy debates?
1: And why and how might we sort of fail to do so? This is a great question. And I think the best way of bringing out what I think we ought to be doing is by giving a type of caricature of what we shouldn't be doing. Uh, So when I first started looking at applied policy questions, uh, political philosophers, or well, not necessarily political philosophers, but people looking at policy issues from a philosophical perspective. Uh, when I started as a student, this was really lo- looked down on uh, in the profession. The, the thought was you did philosophy, and if you couldn't do philosophy, you got a job doing medical ethics or business ethics, and that wasn't really part of the subject. And I, you know, I have to admit, I had that attitude too. And when I started looking at the journals – you would see quite an interesting question being discussed. And someone who might not have had a lot of training as a philosopher would uh, begin by saying, uh, well, this is an important question of the day. This is what a utilitarian would say about it. And this is what a Kantian would say about it. A bit later on, they began to say, and this is what a virtue ethicist would say about it. And I think, yeah, okay, that's what they'd say about it. And then you get to the final section, and the final section would say, and in conclusion, the utilitarian would say this, a Kantian would say this, and a virtue ethicist would say this. And you'd be left knowing what the theorists would say about a problem, but not what to do. And it was as if they were inviting you to choose a theory, and then the solution to the problem would just follow from that theory. And you know, we we read this work, and we, we laughed at it a, a little bit, but we weren't. Many of us looking at those problems. And it was only when I was asked to get involved in public policy questions that I realized that um, there was a sort of fake methodology that we had thought. Uh, so, um, for example, in one committee I was asked to sit on on the regulation of gambling, I thought this was going to be quite an easy topic because you know I'd read John Stuart Mill and I know that the only reason for limiting the freedom of action of any person is to prevent harm or risk of harm to others and I you know went into the committee room about to give them a lecture on John Stuart Mill and then I realized that you know, if we really followed that we'd have a more liberal regime on gambling than any country had ever had in the world so I thought well actually I've been teaching Mill's Liberty Principle for a decade or more by that time already, but I don't actually believe it. Um, I haven't really had to think so hard because there are many reasons why we restrict people's liberty for their own good in in lots of subtle different ways. So what I came to see eventually in this I'm not claiming at all to be original here. I, I followed many other people in this. But uh, but what um, it seems to me we need to do is we, we need to start from the problem that's in front of us. So what is the issue? Uh, today, we have a whole load of problems around the pandemic, vaccine distribution, personal behaviour. Uh, at one point, we were... Debating who should get the ventilator. That may come back again, thankfully, not too many places at the moment. But we have all of these urgent questions. And the idea that the way to solve them is to say, well, a utilitarian would say this, and a Kantian would say this, and a virtue ethicist would say this. It's laughable. It doesn't have any grip on the debate. So instead, what we have to do is think about the problem, think about the values involved, try to elaborate what's in people's heads when they're agonizing about this and then try to connect it with the philosophical literature, starting from the problem and moving backwards rather than starting with the theory and moving forwards. And so I call this method of engaged philosophy. Uh, I don't say it's it's new, but, but what you do is you look at the problem, you try to articulate it as well as you can in philosophical terms, you see the dilemma, you look at the history, how did we get here? You look at international comparisons, what do they do in other countries? And you think about the range of policy options you should have, what you should do, what the consequences would be, what the unintended consequences would be, would that be worse than the problem you're trying to solve? And so on and so on. So philosophy becomes part of a discussion that involves lawyers, empirical scientists, health professionals in this case, many people from other disciplines, and we act together to try to find a solution which is value-based and rigorous but also attentive to the history and policy and current regulations.
0: Early on, uh, when you were answering the, the question about how philosophers can and cannot contribute, it sounded like you were saying something a little bit more about what philosophers should do or maybe what philosophers, how they should, how they should think of their task. And at the end, it sounded a little bit more like they're sort of doing basically the same task they've always done, but in unison with other people, would you would you say that basically philosophers contributing to public discourses should you know sort of produce work that does this kind of engagement internal to the work itself, or just produce similar sorts of philosophy and then hope to connect it?
1: Yeah. Well, when I uh, wrote the book you mentioned, Ethics and Public Policy, the first edition, um, one of my graduate students very kindly um, offered to. Re- write the index for me, do the index. And she was from Singapore. She'd been a civil servant in Singapore, so more mature students. And very polite, but she wrote the index and she came back to me and said, I'm a little bit worried because what you say philosophers do, so this was assess the arguments, make distinctions, uh, think rigorously, think clearly, think analytically. Say what follows from what, say what doesn't follow from what. Uh, she said, That's what I was doing as a civil servant, and that's what journalists do too. So, why do you think that philosophers have got something special here? And I concede the point. I think what philosophers do is something that other people can do too. Uh, civil servants do it. Many of them have been trained in philosophy to some degree. Journalists do it. We all do it. The the difference is that we've been trained to do it in a rigorous way. Uh, We have a literature. We have a history of philosophy. We spend all day thinking about these issues. So it's quite likely that we may have insights that other people haven't had it's not certain. And I've definitely met better philosophers from outside philosophy than some of the philosophers I've met from inside philosophy. So I think these skills are spread, but I think they're, they're more concentrated in, in people who are professional philosophers for the obvious reasons. And we do have something to bring to these discussions, but we shouldn't think it's something different in kind, I don't think. I think it's just something that's different in degree and concentration. So, uh, how, how does that? Uh, how do you think of
0: interdisciplinarity then as the role of philosophers? You talked about a lot of different sort of perspectives, both professions and disciplinary perspectives, and how this can form. Um, sort of one way of thinking about this uh, sometimes might be thought of as uh, uh, in the Rawlsian uh, tradition is: is look, I'm a I'm a moral philosopher, I know this set of material, I'm going to come up with principles which can then be. Uh, applied by those who uh you know who combine the social sciences with them. Right. So there's this kind of division of labor. Um, that's one way of thinking about a contribution. Uh one concern I have with that way of thinking about the contribution is who's doing the combining and who's asking people to combine. Um, you know, I I worry uh a bit about that the the social science uh, m- might not really ever get that much connected to the philosophy unless the philosophers do it or that philosophers need to produce work that are, uh, that engages with that social sciences directly instead of, say, coming up with, uh, thought experiments that tease out fundamental principles and just kind of hoping someone picks up on them. Uh, so how do you see, uh, w- when you're talking about, uh, ethics and public policy, how do you see the role of the philosopher here in the sense of, do you think that the philosopher in their sort of productive work themselves needs to engage very directly with the empirical literature or do you or would you say it is a kind of division of labor uh sort of understanding
1: yeah so i i think um this is a question to which there's not one answer uh, but what, what i have th- thought in the past is that there's a type of urgent dynamic and a slow dynamic um, and what i mean is that um, in my own work, I've done a lot of committee work where we're addressing a problem of the day. For example, things about um drug policy, or I've mentioned gambling law, uh changes to regulations about experiments on animals and so on, where there's an urgent issue that needs to be addressed and the philosophers brought in as one person on a committee. And it's a shock, actually, that the committee only has type of limited respect for the philosopher they they want to say they want to talk about values but they're not going to be dictated by the philosopher they're going to they want the philosophers to engage and engage in dialogue rather than just give them a lecture and tell them what's what about philosophy so in that sense you have to be very pragmatic um, i very soon learned not to talk about whether values were objective or subjective. Um, I learned to talk about what is widely shared and what is not widely shared, because that way you can make some progress. And to some degree, um, you're finessing the hard philosophical questions because you've you've got a task and it needs to be done and you don't have the rest of time to sort it out. So in that sort of fast dynamic where you've got an urgent question, uh, philosophers do have to engage in this much more pragmatic mode. But one of the things we're drawing on in that mode is a philosophical literature that was produced under different conditions. So it was produced by people who had no deadlines or, or, or different type of deadlines. Um, people who were writing because they thought it was true. They were engaging in the questions they felt they needed to engage with rather than what would, what would settle an argument on the day. So we have, of course, John Rawls. Uh, one example. Peter Singer is another example of someone whose work has been very influential, but in a longer in a longer wave. So I think in in this longer wave, philosophers just do what they do. They put ideas into the public domain. Most of them die a death. They remain just within the journals. But every now and again, something is inspiring uh, through your students, through your readers, through uh, the intelligent the interested general reader, as it used to be called in this country, uh, people who want to know about ideas and they pick things up. So I would say, for example, Rawls's difference principle has had some influence in In political debates in the UK, I'm not saying we've adopted the difference principle, but we've had senior politicians, even prime ministers who knew about Rawls's work and thought it was important. And not because Rawls was lobbying or engaging in committees, but because it had become part of the intellectual canon. And these were educated people who studied the works. So I think... um, To go back to the question, who is doing the combining? Sometimes a philosopher with others, but sometimes it is right that we produce theories, we produce ideas, develop concepts, and others take them on. Uh, All I would say is that if that's how you want to do philosophy, you have a thousand and one chance that anyone will take it on. You have to be John Rawls or John Stuart Mill or Peter Singer for that to happen.
0: All right. Uh, I could talk, uh, uh, about these sorts of issues, uh, indefinitely, but we, you mentioned, uh, uh, urgent, uh, uh, concerns, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, of course, provides all sorts of urgent ethical concerns. Um, one area that you've written quite a bit about is risk. Um, obviously the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, puts people in general at risk but not all individuals live with the same degree of risk. Some people face significantly more risk based on their identity or based on their occupations or based on pre-existing health conditions and so on. Um, and, and you've written about this in a recent piece, uh, uh, which is also available on the pandemic ethics website. You suggest uh, four basic principles for thinking about risk and how policy should be uh, adopted. Can you say a little bit more about these principles and what they might uh, your, your rationale behind them and what they might mean in practice?
1: Thank you. Yes. So I, I think I would want to begin by distinguishing two different issues about risk in relation to the pandemic. I'm sure there are very many. Um, so one is the type of differential risk because of facts about individuals. So we know that um, So one of the first things that, that we learned, uh, looking at the statistics coming from Italy was that men seem to be at greater risk of dying than women. And I think this still bears out. Also, there was a very sharp age gradient. So um, early on, most of the deaths were in people over the age of 70, even over the age of 80. And I think this still continues. We now know much more about ethnicity and risk and it, Turns out, both in the US and in the UK, that uh, people from minority backgrounds seem to have a much heightened risk of infection and of death as well, sadly. And I'm not sure this is entirely understood, although there are many, many factors that are understood and are obviously making a contribution. So so those are risks that um, are... Risks to individuals because of the way the disease infects individuals and the course of the disease. But there's another type of risk, which I think of in terms of at least partially imposed risk, or at least um, risk that falls on some people because of the roles that they're taking in society, not because of their age or. Uh, ethnic background. So most obviously, health workers uh, are facing a much higher risk in certainly in some countries. And when protective equipment was not available, the risk was very high in probably all countries. People like mailmen, people like bus drivers, people like security guards, uh, people who are doing manual work, construction work, uh, people who are serving in supermarkets, people who are delivering to supermarkets. There are people who are taking on heightened risk just so other people can survive. We couldn't have a situation in which everyone just refused to take risk. If if everyone said, why should I do that and stayed at home, then you know, we would be in very serious trouble very quickly. So simply to keep people alive from day to day, a significant minority of us have to, take on risks. So that's what I'm t- talking about. Those people who voluntarily or non-voluntarily or semi-voluntarily are taking on optional risks on um, for the sake of everyone else, not for themselves. And I think that you know, sometimes we appreciate some of these categories, maybe health workers, um, but people like shop workers, food store workers, I'm not sure anyone has regarding those people as heroes but they are they're taking on risks so the rest of us can survive so my my question is um when is that justified and what should we do to recognize this uh, exceptional sacrifice for us
0: so what four principles ought to govern then the uh, treatment of people who take on these additional risks? What, how should we adapt public policy to recognize the additional risk taken on by essential workers?
1: And the four principles that I suggested, um, I'm not saying there's any great novelty here. Uh, the, the first one is to say, well, just don't impose the risk unless the benefits outweigh the cost. So sometimes we ask people to do very risky things when there isn't all that much benefit or if the risk could be spread in a way that minimises it, so don't don't ask people to do things we don't need to do. Uh, don't ask people to um, go to work in non-essential shops at the height of the pandemic. Don't ask people to serve in bars and restaurants if the infection is really raging very highly in your neighborhood. So don't impose a risk unless the benefits outweigh the cost. So the the second principle I said is to try to find qualified volunteers or people who will accept extra pay to run the risk, but not to exploit them. So one of the most noble things, I I think, not from the pandemic, was in the uh, Japanese nuclear disaster, where a cleanup operation was required. And uh, the one group of people who volunteered were retired nuclear power workers who knew what to do and knew they didn't have a long time to live. Although in Japan, of course, people do live... uh, a long life, have a long life expectancy, there was a group of people who said, you know, we've had a good life. Uh, it's unfair that younger people should do this who haven't lived their life. We will volunteer to, to run this risk on behalf of other people. And sometimes you can find that that people will altruistically be prepared to volunteer or a mix of altruism and self-interest will be prepared to volunteer At a higher wage, although, as I've said, it should be a respectful higher wage and not exploitative higher wage. And this is really an obvious point that rather than forcing people to do things, find people who will do it more willingly. The third principle is if the bad event happens, if someone gets infected or someone, um, their health is affected in the long term, they should re. sorry, they should receive compensation. Uh, when I was studying law, which was many, many years ago, every now and again, I would come across this phrase, uh, let the loss lie where it falls. And that is the thought that sometimes bad things happen and all what we should do is just not exactly ignore it, but not think anyone needs to compensate it. That if a bad thing happens, yeah, if your front wall in your garden falls over, um, that's a bad thing that happens. It's your responsibility to clear it up. It would be different if a car crashed into it or someone pushed it over. Normally, we just say, let the loss lie where it falls. But when people are taking on a risk for for us, it seems to me quite wrong to say that we should let the loss lie where it falls. If they're taking on the risk for us, it's part of a type of social contract that we should compensate them if the bad thing happens. That's the third principle. And the fourth principle is that we should take special care to minimize the risk in question. Even if it costs us quite a lot, if people are volunteering for the sake of the common good, then we should try to minimize their sacrifice, make as sure as we can that they're not running an unnecessary risk, even if it's expensive, as I say. So the application to this at the moment, would be that we should make sure all healthcare workers have very good protective equipment. Mortuary workers, uh, even bus drivers, should should have as good protective equipment as is reasonable and compatible with them doing their job.
0: Excellent, thanks so much, uh, Joe. Uh, can you? Say, I was wondering if I could follow up the protective equipment. You, you gave the protective equipment example, but maybe maybe if you can give. Uh, one or two more uh, examples of what these principles might entail in practice. You know, sort of if you want to even play philosopher king and say, like, if I was going to adopt these three policies, uh, here's what it would be, uh, and we'll go from there. Thanks.
1: Okay, thank you. So, I I, I think that the it, it may be helpful to think about the basic reasoning behind this. And although um, I I wouldn't want to apply it as a general method in Ethics, I'm very sympathetic to the like Rawlsian idea of a hypothetical contract and the veil of ignorance. And the thought is what would you choose for society if you didn't know what your role in it was? So, to simplify, suppose there are only two categories in society healthcare workers and people who are not healthcare workers. And we know that healthcare workers have to take on an extra risk. In order to protect the rest of us. So suppose you were behind the veil of ignorance. You knew that healthcare workers have to take on an extra risk, but you don't know whether you're a healthcare worker or not. What would you want for healthcare workers? Now, on the one hand, you might say, well, I want every possible protection. I want you know, fantastic protective equipment, whatever the cost of it. Uh, I want to be first to the vaccine. I want to have extra wages for compensation, very high extra wages. But on the other hand, you might think, well, if I'm not a health worker, I'm going to be paying for that. So we don't want to do anything unreasonable. If um, the protective equipment only gives a tiny amount of extra protection at enormous cost, it's not worth it. So what we should do is try to work out what a reasonable price to pay is to give people extra protection, if not universal protection. So uh, talk about healthcare workers, um, the, the three policies I would uh, want for them is first of all, they should have extra pay during the pandemic to compensate them for the risk they're running. They should have very good protective equipment, as I've mentioned, in order to minimize the risk. And they should also be at the front of the queue, front of the line for the vaccine once it becomes available. Uh, so none of this is rocket science, none of it is surprising, but it flows from a type of social contract reasoning where we say we're all in it together and we particularly shouldn't forget those people who are working so hard to protect us. I wonder if as a kind of follow-up,
0: uh if this emphasis on people who are uh undertake special obligations you mentioned healthcare workers um how might that principle to make sure that they're properly compensated how might that interact with other considerations and and what i have in mind here is is sort of two I take to be somewhat related questions, which is your first principle was don't impose risk unless the benefits outweigh the cost, right? So then we have a, a question about how you weigh the money spent for compensating healthcare workers for other things that that money could be spent on in the course of the pandemic, uh, say, uh, you know, providing basic assistance to people who are, you know, unemployed, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and a second question then is: if You think about the the risks. Does this sort of duty not to impose risk tell us anything specifically, uh, or you know, help us think about the ethics of lockdowns in general and how to make trade-offs between uh, you know uh, such lockdowns and the risks involved of people who run them?
1: Very good. Okay, so that very first principle, don't oppose the risk unless the benefits outweigh the cost. You're absolutely right that you need to be able to measure the benefits and the costs. And this has led to a whole industry of risk cost benefit analysis, where people try to use quite precise monetary measures, converting risks and benefits into a financial sum. Now, I've done some of this work myself in some areas like transport safety that I've worked on. Uh, we don't have alternative methodologies other than to try to convert everything into monetary value. Well, that's an exaggeration. There are other methodologies, but we haven't adopted them. And um, Once you start looking, um, you're absolutely right. The calculations become horrendously complicated uh, because you can always spend the money another way, and it might be that you can spend it in a much more effective way. So, for example, um, when I was doing trans- working on transport safety, we spend a certain amount of money to save a life on the railways in the UK. But for that very same money, we could probably save 20 lives in the National Health Service, or we might be able to save 2,000 lives if we send it abroad as development aid. So um, it's always very unlikely that you're doing the very best you can do with the money. There's always going to be some sort of limited calculation. The one you've posed to me, if I've I've got it, is, I think, a fantastic example because it, it goes to the ethics and practicalities of a lockdown. So... In the UK at the moment, we've gone into a a second lockdown. It's not as rigorous as the first lockdown. Schools and the universities are still functioning with face-to-face teaching. Uh, But many people are not able to work, particularly people in catering and hospitality. Also, people who... Test positive or have been in contact with people who've tested positive have been asked to isolate and to you know, for very good reason. So we've been putting a lot of emphasis on these words: a test and trace and isolate. Uh, but a lot of people in public health say there are actually four things: it's test, trace, isolate, and support. Because if people can't afford to stay at home not working they're going to go to work. They might not take the test. They might lie about the results or they might ignore it. So for public health reasons, we actually need to give people a decent way of surviving, even if they're not working, even if they're isolating at home. And so your question is, um, from the point of view of public health, is it better to spend the money on good protective equipment for health workers and better wages and maybe getting them the vaccine first? Or is it better to spend the money on getting people to isolate and support them at home so they don't have to go out and work and take a risk? Anyway, that's how I'm hijacking your question, even if that wasn't the original intention. I think you know, this is very interesting. And economists very often put us um, under these sorts of dilemmas? Is it better to spend this this way? Or is it better to spend the money the other way? Um, some ethicists hate this question, because of course, it then forces a choice and neither of them are very palatable. And so our uh, instinct is to say, just get some more money. <laughs> and of course, that's um, not always a solution. But in this case, there are people who are doing perfectly well out of the pandemic, I, uh, there are some people who are doing incredibly well and making a fortune out of it. So people um, like Amazon, for example, but also uh, people who are supplying medical equipments, you know, they've never had it so good. The, the, there are certain parts of the economy which is booming and I was reading yesterday that the dry ice industry is about to start booming because of the need to keep vaccines chilled and high-quality glass. So the parts of the economy that are making absolute killing out of the pandemic. Other people like me, possibly you, I, I can't speak. Uh, I'm drawing my normal salary, but my expenses have gone down. I'm not going out. I'm not getting on trains as I did. I'm actually probably making more money in terms of income um, incomes income and outgoings than I would be. So I should be taxed in order to, I should be taxed more in order to uh, both provide the protective equipment and provide support for people who are in need of support in order to isolate. What seems to have happened is that this um, band of, wealthier professionals. The people who are making the policy seem to forget that uh, they are doing quite well and have a different type of contribution they can make, which is a financial contribution through the tax system. So so that's how I would want to develop my answer. Uh, maybe it's not the question you ask, but, but I think it's important in any case.
0: I think it's a reasonable answer in, uh, sort of our, uh, I mean, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic among the other impacts, the early economic results seem to be in a kind of an exacerbation of various winner-take-all trends in our society. You know, consolidation of economic power. Um, some people who are already doing well, doing really, really well. Um, and, uh, it conversely, uh, the the negative impacts tend to be felt by uh, those who we might already have thought of as a uh, uh, disadvantage so I think you know uh, uh, more progressivity in our political and ec- our economic institutions seems to be more than uh, called for in general but certainly uh, in, in the times of the pandemic um, Kind of a follow-up question about that when people talk about a uh, uh, question with respect to risk when people talk about risk, in uh, theory and in practice, um, so often we talk about it as though there's a kind of somewhat clear or reasonably clear statistical risk that we figured out. Uh, one of the sort of challenges of the pandemic is 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 that we're making sort of policy as data is being collected, and sometimes not very good data at that. Um, what a, how would you sort of when you're making claims about what sorts of risk? to, uh, to uh, impose upon people, how, would, how, do we, how should we sort of account with the sort of underlying uncertainties of the pandemic, including the efficacy of various approaches and so on?
1: Yeah. Um, well, this is um, a real problem. Um, most of the theory about dealing with risk assumes that you have pretty good estimates, stable estimates of, of what's a risk is, which you can then feed into a mathematical formula and work out what you should do at the other end. But the sad truth is that there are very few areas where we have enough data to know what the risk of anything is. Um... And so we're working really in the area of uncertainty rather than risk. We, we're not sure what's going to happen. In fact, we in some cases, we have no idea what's going to happen. Therefore, we have no idea of the probabilities and we have no idea of the harms. So in many cases, we're making decisions with very little information. We're having to, to make educated guesses about things. In addition to that, and I th- think this may also have been uh, behind the question, is that even working out what an individual's risk group is, Uh, Is is quite tough. Um, So, yeah, I remember coming home from a seminar feeling quite depressed because I'd been to – the the person who was giving the seminar put on the board um, a number of figures, and when he explained them, I realized that he had just said that someone of my age – and I I wasn't that old at the time – someone of my age had a one in a hundred chance of dying the next year which seems staggering to me that some, someone of my age should have that probability. And I came home and I said to my wife, my son was, out, I'm going to take out some life insurance because look, I, there's a one in a hundred chance I'm going to die next year. But and
0: I got a bottle of scotch. I <laughs> yeah.
1: So anyway, but, so my son who, who was, you know, he was still at primary school. I think he said, dad, do you smoke? do you, uh, are you fat? You know, do, do you drink too much? And of course, um, his point was that I'm in a very low risk group because I don't smoke. I don't drink very much. I take some exercise. I'm not enormously overweight and so on. So yes, of course, people at my age, one in a hundred might die. But if you start looking at someone who's more like me, it might be one in 200, or one in 500. But of course, as soon as you start doing that, you narrow yourself down to a group of one person, because there's no one else exactly like you. And then the probability is either one or zero, either you're going to die or you're not going to die. So we're back into this radical uncertainty. So the more precise we get actually in the demographics, the less reliable the uh, risk calculations are, even though we're trying to increase the reliability. And even now, when I look in my my own risk group, uh, people draw up the tables for ages in different ways. So according to some Actuaries, I have a certain chance of dying. According to another, it's a different chance of dying, but all based on the same figures. So we are in, in a very difficult position. But the truth is, I think nothing much depends on these very precise calculations. Um, we do need to know more or less, and this is going to be very critical, actually, in the current, in the coming months. Because I think there's uh, a broad understanding that there will be a vaccine available in the next few months. There won't be very much of it, so we need to ration it. And almost everyone agrees that it should go first to the most vulnerable. So we're going to be having interminable debates now about what counts as vulnerability. Is it age? Is it uh, comorbidities? Is it ethnic group? Is it poverty? There are all sorts of things that are increasing people's vulnerability, but which are the ones that should qualify you for a vaccine? So I think, you know, I don't have any answers to this. um, these, These debates have already started. The UK has put out some provisional guidance just for consultation, which pretty much does it on an age basis. People in care homes first, people working in social care and the health service next. Than you know, the over 90s, the over 85s, the over 80s uh, with, with uh, adjustment for comorbidities. So we, we, we need some judgments, but maybe comparative judgments are enough, um, maybe rough judgments are enough. Um, if we spend too much time trying to work out the precise details, we'll never actually get anywhere. So we probably need some rough justice here to deal with the uh, pragmatics of the situation and the urgency
0: yeah i think you're right uh final question feel free to uh uh demure asking it uh, you're at oxford uh, currently which uh last time i was there was in the united kingdom uh is the united kingdom doing better or worse than the united states handling uh, the covid crisis and why
1: okay uh so this is a great great question So, in the UK, uh, we stand here sort of self righteously looking at the American infection figures in the second wave and saying these terrible, irresponsible Americans, they haven't taken it seriously. They're still going to bars, still going to restaurants. Thanksgiving is coming up. This is going to be a disaster, which it probably will do. And we look at numbers of infections. I believe the figure yesterday was 160,000, the day before, 140,000, the day before, 120,000 it's accelerating at great speed. Um, What very few people in the UK have been noticing is that in terms of infections per million, in the second wave, the US has only just caught up with the UK, because we're around about 20,000, 25,000 a day, and we have, what, a fifth of your population. So in terms of current infections per million, We're roughly at the same point as the US, although I think we have hit the top, at least temporarily, of the wave, whereas the US is about to do itself untold damage, I think, over Thanksgiving. So if you think it's bad now, uh, in a a month's time, we may be at double the levels, unfortunately. Um, But the leadership in both countries has not been good. Um, in the US, you know very well what has been happening, um, the, the idea that somehow you can um, – well, very early on, uh, someone said that Donald Trump will soon learn that he can't gaslight a pandemic. Uh, he never really learned that. He thought he could just um, talk it down and it would somehow go away. That That didn't happen. In the UK, we have – made noises about taking it seriously but we've never really got our systems working so we're testing more people that's right but the tracing is not working and people are not isolating very much you know people are ordering tests for home use and they're not arriving and so on so so we're in a mess we've spent a vast amount of money most of it has gone to um People who have been associated with politicians it, from the outside, and maybe there's an innocent explanation, but from the outside, it looks like the worst form of corruption we may ever have seen in this country, with politicians awarding their their friends or partners of other MPs contracts in areas they had no previous experience. So, from the point of view of corruption, it's really been almost a uh, uh, Level we've never seen before in the UK, which is tragic because it means that many thousands of people probably are dying, who wouldn't have had to die if we had organised things better. So I think um, superficially the UK looks like it's done a better job than the U than the US. In reality, I don't think there's a huge amount between them. I do think that more people in the UK are taking it seriously. And I think we're on the verge of um, getting the better of the second wave, I hope. One of the big differences goes to supporting people who are not able to work and what has happened more in some European countries and in the UK, to give us credit, is that when people haven't been able to work, they've been a- they've mostly been able to get enough money from the state to live on at a reasonable level. As I understand it, this hasn't happened to the same extent in the US, or certainly not everywhere in the US. So people have felt very um, upset at the idea of lockdown because they can't go out to work, and can't feed their families, can't look after their families. Um, there is an old slogan in public health, very similar to nudge politics. Um, and the, the slogan is, make the healthy choice the easy choice. That is, make the healthy thing to do the easy thing to do. And I judge governments on the basis of how well they have succeeded in this that if the government is telling you to isolate have they given you the supports needed to isolate the UK has done that okay it's just not told enough people to isolate I think the US hasn't achieved that so well and the the toll will tell unfortunately. Mm. We might pay for that
0: afterwards, too, and skyrocketing debt. Uh, and, and that might impact recovery and everything else, too. Uh, all right. Thanks so much, uh, uh, Joe, for your time and for your answers. Thanks for being our inaugural guest. And uh, be well and stay safe.
1: Thank you. It was a pleasure and an absolute honor to be the inaugural guest. So good luck with the series. And thank you again for inviting me.
0: This has been Pandemic Ethics. My thanks again to Jonathan Wolf Alfred Landecker, Professor of Ethics and Public Policy at Oxford University. My thanks also to my colleague Craig Matarice and the musical collective Algo Underground for the delightfully atonal soundtrack for the podcast. For more information on this episode, including suggested readings, as well as a preview of upcoming episodes, go to pandemic-ethics.com. Until next time, be well and stay safe.